Thank you for that, Kelsey. That uh, story was, was absolutely wonderful. Let's, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer this morning. Jesus, I thank you that you do care, that you see us right where we are, whether we're in a moment of victory and we're celebrating, whether we're in a moment of failure and we're grieving, whether we're in a moment of loss and we're hurting or confused, if we're in a moment of uh, just whatever. You come and you sit with us. You just embrace our emotional state where we are. You care. That's something that uh, sometimes we struggle to truly own. We, uh, we resonate more with the psalmist. Who, who am I that you are mindful of me? Jesus, you got way more bigger things in my perspective to worry about than where I am at. We just thank you that you do care. As we uh, open your word this morning, Father, I ask that you uh, just bless this time. May my words be yours. May your spirit be present and guide us into all truth. We thank you in advance. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good afternoon. How are we doing today? Good. There's a, a smattering of, which is good. It's a, it was supposed to be a lot grayer today. Um, so I'm, I'm really happy about that. For those of you who are considering that, uh, that walk later this afternoon, this is a good sign. Amen? Yes. Brett's cookies are also a good sign, but this is a good sign as well. Um, it's, it's wonderful to be here with you this week. Once again, we're going to be continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We are two weeks in, so if you're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize there was a series going on, no worries. Only two weeks behind. You can jump on our podcast, jump on a website, and catch up really quickly this afternoon or sometime this week. Not a problem. But today we're going to jump right into the text where we left off last week as we begin this week's teaching one new humanity. I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to begin turning to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 11. As you're turning there, just to remind you a little bit that last week we, uh, we examined the 10 verses preceding these. In, uh, in verses 1 through 3 of the second chapter of this letter, we saw how Paul had outlined the condition of humanity before Jesus, before Jesus, dead in sin, following the way of the enemy of God, led by corrupt impulses and desires within us, just like everyone else. Verses 1 through 3 don't describe a particular class or demographic of people as much as they describe the totality of humanity apart from Jesus. And then in verses 4 through 10, we saw the beautiful solution to the human condition in Jesus Christ. The unlovable loved unconditionally. The worthless given inestimable value. The dead made alive. The lost saved by the grace of a loving God. The broken made new by the very efforts of Jesus himself. 
those incapable of good, redesigned for greatness, no longer destined to follow the way of the enemy of God, but rather led to walk in paths of righteousness designed by God himself. We might say that verses 1 through 3 are the condition of every human apart from Christ and that verses 4 through 10 are the solution for every human in Christ. But here in verse 11, where we're going to pick up today, Paul narrows his focus a bit. He's no longer talking to just anyone. At least his writing has a a much more specific direction that it takes. So let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11 begins this way, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Who is Paul talking to here? It's not a rhetorical question. Who is Paul talking to here? The Gentiles. Very good. Very good. He's talking to Gentiles. Non-Jewish people, right? Any Gentiles in the house today? My hand's up because I am one. Let's represent Sweet, very good. Paul doesn't just limit his specificity, though, to those outside of the family of Israel by genetics, if you will. He says, you uh, Gentiles in the flesh, something beyond DNA that makes these Gentiles different from the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just comes out and he says it, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Thus is brought up absolutely no one's favorite word in the Bible. You know, you guys reacted the same way as first service. I seriously, I thought somebody would go, (laughs) but no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's early yet. (laughs) Paul brings up circumcision. Nobody really likes to talk about it, but let's not run from it. Here we go. Circumcision is not some odd cultural quirk for the Jews of this era. It's not just some bright idea somebody had that everybody's doing these days, okay? In fact, circumcision was physical evidence of a genetic or a even covenantal reality of where you stood before God, okay? Are you part of his covenant people or not? Are you in his family or not? If you're a man, this was the physical symbol of that. And just because verses 1 through 10 are true doesn't mean that there were not elements in the church that still took tremendous pride in being part of the original covenant family. Before Paul addresses whether in Christ there is any distinction between Jew and Gentile, he decides to briefly elaborate on the condition of Gentiles before Jesus. So verse 12 He jumps in. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Separate from Christ, or Messiah, the anointed one. He was to come from Israel to Israel, right? Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not citizens with God's people, referred to as aliens or sojourners or even more on the nose, Gentiles, right? Those uh, outside of us, if you will. It was a distinction, a different class of people. In fact, there is, according to Josephus, the the Jewish historian, a contemporary of of Jesus in the New Testament writers, he 
He tells us that there was a a sign posted in in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that uh, that said, if you were a Gentile, you were not to pass, pass this sign. You could not enter closer into the temple than this one waypoint on pain of death. They would kill you for coming closer if you were not part of the circumcision. I'm glad that line isn't in church today. Um, They were strangers to the covenants of promise. God didn't make a covenant with the Gentiles. The if you obey, then I will covenant that God established with Israel at Mount Sinai was for Israel, for those inside the covenant family. Gentiles, non-Israelites, they were not given the same promises. Paul says they had no hope without God in the world. See, the plan had been for Israel to bless the world by revealing God's love to the world. It's supposed to be a missional empowerment to share the goodness of God with the world, right? But they failed. They turned inward, and they even rejected what light they had been given. The Gentiles did not receive the blessing through Israel's failure to keep the covenant. So what hope could they have, Paul says? They were without hope. They had turned away from worshiping the Creator God to worshiping the creation, whether that was in the form of idols or some other mysticism of the world, without a knowledge of God, without God's adopted covenant family sharing with them, they were in a very bad place. In other words, if you were either a Gentile or you were a Jew considering thinking about a Gentile, you might wonder if there was anything at all that Jesus could do for people like that. Verse 13. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, Paul says, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, one new humanity, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Paul outlines several things that Jesus has done for those outside of the Old Covenant. And the ramifications of what that means for his family going forward. Let's make a list. What has Jesus done? Jesus has brought Gentiles near. You who were far off have been brought near. Jesus said it this way to his disciples. He says, I have sheep who are not of this fold, right? Some of us need a nap this afternoon. It's all good. It's a day of rest. Let's get some. Okay? He's brought Gentiles near. There are people who are outside that Jesus has brought inside. Jesus has become our peace. In a very literal sense, um, I, 
this, this one in particular has been doing some work on me, which has been good because a lot of work needs to be done on me. Um, depending, I've been learning a lot about myself uh, more recently, who I am as a person, as personality and all that. And then depending on uh, certain personality metrics that would label me as a peacemaker, okay? A peacemaker, if you will. Um, well, that, that really kind of sounds snobbish, really, because, like, blessed are the peacemakers. Ooh, nice. I'm very blessed. What all that means is, for better or worse, I have a tendency to avoid conflict and seek resolution as soon as possible with people around me. Now, that can be a tremendous asset. Amen? Please say, oh, good, good. Phew. Need some affirmation in my life. But it can also be a tremendous weakness and struggle because sometimes we shouldn't run from conflict. Sometimes we shouldn't resist sharing how we feel with those around us. And even we don't know how that might feel to them, right? How they might react. Sometimes a relationship needs a little tension to grow, right? Okay, so I'm a peacemaker and I tend to carry little too much stress in my life. As a matter of fact, I was re reflecting recently with somebody and I, I shared with them that the more I think about it, the more I realize that when I'm having a conversation with someone, I am carrying in my self, however you want to describe that, I carry all of the responsibility. I place all the responsibility on myself to maintain this relationship, to make sure that we're at peace after this conversation is over, okay? Which kind of sounds noble, but uh, there's certain areas of life where martyrdom is okay and certain other ones where it's not. And this one, like, I have had a, a few instances recently where um, I really believe this has affected my physical well-being. Like I have, I have taken on too much stress into myself and it's been unhealthy for me. I was carrying too much responsibility for peace. As a matter of fact, I described it to somebody this way, that, that I, uh, when I'm talking to somebody, if it's a tenuous conversation, um, I might look fine, calm, whatever, but inside I'm imagining whatever however many potential outcomes there are to this, especially the bad ones, and I'm holding that stress over myself as if those were real, as if they had happened. To prevent it from happening, I think, is like the, the tendency. Whatever. I was sharing this with a friend of mine, a uh, pastor just down the road in our sister church in Tualatin, and Pastor Troy Wallace, I was chatting with him about this, and he says, you know, I've struggled with that before too, and I was sharing that with somebody, and they, they, they gave me some serious insight, and he passed it along to me. It's been wonderful for, for me, and it, it's brilliant because it just jumps out of the text right here. In those moments when I'm imagining everything, how it could go wrong, and I'm behaving as if that's real, he says, in those moments, in all those scenarios, you know what's absent? In my mind, what is absent is Jesus. I am carrying the responsibility for keeping peace when Jesus is supposed to be my peace. I realized, my goodness, I am not just doing myself a disservice, but I am attempting to step into the very role of Jesus Christ in my life. And wouldn't you know it, it doesn't go well? <laughs> 
And so what, what Paul is saying here is he's, Jesus has become our peace. And this is very, like, first and foremost, Paul is making the point that literally Jesus is the peace that unites Jew and Gentile. He breaks through racial, cultural, religious barriers. He is the peace there. But there's a deeper, equally true meaning here. What Paul is saying is that when we focus on Jesus, he is our peace. He maintains his peace. When we look to him to make peace, he does it. Even in moments, Paul would write another time to a church in Philippi, the statement that uh, he has this, this brand of peace that one, one translation would render it, transcends all understanding. I like to rephrase it a little bit as peace that just doesn't make sense. In other words, you're in a moment when it's not normal to be at peace, but because of Jesus, we can be at peace. I don't know if that spoke to you, but I just preached to myself for just a little bit there. It's all good. So what else has Jesus done for the Gentiles? What else has he done for the Gentiles? He has broken down the wall of division. Now, there's a little bit of flexibility with how this, this clause that Paul has here can be translated. Um, and uh, I've, I've grabbed these words. They're an, an, an alternate kind of translation than what, what was on the screen with the NASB. It's roughly the same thing. You'd wouldn't really notice a difference, but you can either say that Jesus has broken down a barrier, he's broken down a wall. I guess that's, that's the, the, the big uh, difference in how you can read it. It seems like, well, what's the difference? The difference, I would say, is this. Paul is attempting to, to communicate to the church, the wall is gone. So whatever other barrier you have regarding it, let's remove that too. Let me posit it to you this way. I'm, I'm too young to have experienced the uh, the uh, the issues in, um, in in Berlin back in the day with like the the Berlin Wall right and East and West Berlin all that stuff I, I've seen documentaries of red textbooks but sorry I'm too young for that if that dates you I apologize um, here's the deal there was a point in time when there was a very literal barrier between the two sides right and things were done differently on the two different sides and there was a moment in time when that wall was gone. What would have happened if the people on both sides behaved as if the barrier were still there? The wall being gone wouldn't have done anything for them, right? Paul is saying Jesus has torn the wall down. So let's do away with whatever other barriers are, are in your mind with this. The wall is gone. Things are different now. Okay? Jesus has broken down the wall of division. Jesus has abolished the law as a means and metric of belonging. It's not what you do that determines whether you have a place in God's family. There's a song we sang a few minutes ago that says, I couldn't earn it. It's not my means of belonging. The law, I, I, I can't, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's not a no longer a viable metric either. I can't say, well, where on the scale of good am I? Am I good enough? No, it doesn't work that way. Salvation in Christ is different. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. You belong, brothers and sisters, because of what Jesus has done and is doing in you. Jesus has made a new class of humanity. It's a whole new category of humans. 
Gentiles don't need to become Jews. Jews don't need to become Gentiles. Both become Christians, if you will. And I'm using that word Christians in its classic, original sense, follower of Christ. You see, there's often a cultural stigma of what a Christian is and isn't, what a Christian should and shouldn't be, how a Christian does and doesn't look, what a Christian does and doesn't like. And it's not worth my time or your effort to try to correct whatever stigma we might choose to talk about. Because the bottom line is this. There is a great deal of room in the body of Christ for who you are. There's a whole new class of humanity. And within that, Jesus doesn't cookie-cutter us each out so that we're identical. Remember what we looked at last week? We are his workmanship. Who you are is the workmanship of Christ. When you lay your old dead life down and you receive the new life that Jesus has designed for you, who you are is the work of his hands. Your tastes. Your preferences. How, how, what, what style of dress you choose to embrace, what not. Jesus is making you into something good. We are his workmanship. So the beauty is that we can be free to be who he's making us to be. Jesus has made one way for humans to have access to God. Nothing and no one can keep you from Jesus. Nothing and no one can keep you from experiencing the fullness of life that he has given to you. Nothing and no one can keep you from the Father. For we all have equal access through the Holy Spirit. So, if this is what Jesus has done, what now? Who are we now? Let's jump back to Ephesians verse 19. Let's continue. Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. No, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. My Gentile brethren here today, <laughs> we are not strangers. We're not aliens or outsiders. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus, we have tremendous value. We don't have to earn our way into citizenship. We don't have to pay our way into citizenship as you might in Rome. No, no, no. We can't do either of those. But we are given tremendous value equal to all who accept His love purely because of His unconditional, unstoppable love. We are just like, Paul says, <laughs> your fellow citizens with the saints, you are just like the saints or the holy ones. Or I might say a more contemporary wording might be the church people. <laughs> church people aren't better than you. Might also say you're not better than church people, but you're just the same. We are in God's family. When he says you're in God's household, that doesn't mean, well, you're a servant and he's given you this little like janitorial closet to sleep in because, you know, he doesn't want you to get sick out in the rain. No, you're in God's household. You're part of the family. You are a son and a daughter of God. Jesus doesn't just save us from condemnation. In him we are adopted 
as sons and daughters, full-fledged members of the family of God, unconditionally loved. Verses 20 through 22, here we go. Paul continues, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. No longer are we isolated from the temple. A line drawn that says, do not cross over pain of death. Paul says, you're not isolated from the temple. You are part of the temple. Jew and Gentile alike. In Christ, one new humanity, one temple of God, made up of his followers. Unless we feel like we are left to figure out this life on our own, Paul wants us to remember that we are part of something bigger than just ourselves. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is maybe Paul speak for New and Old Testament. Scripture speaks into our foundation, and Jesus himself is the cornerstone that holds everything together and holds everything up. So, question for you. So, so when somebody, if you ever had a situation like this, where it's like rock climbing or something, uh, somebody is high up in the air, okay? They're, they're climbing up or they're climbing down, and they seem to be getting a little rattled, a little nervous, a little scared. What advice do we often call out to them? Y'all getting a head start on that nap, man. I'm jealous. It's all good. What advice do we call out to them? Okay, hold on, that's a good one, it really is. It's not the one I was looking for, but it's okay. Don't look down, right? Don't look down. If like any movie you've ever seen, they don't look down, they go, huh? And it's, anyway. Paul's telling us just the opposite. Just the opposite. Are you feeling insecure? Are you feeling inadequate? Unsure of how you stand before God? Do you seek support and direction in your life? Look down. You're part, let's say you're a brick in the temple of God. Sometimes the brick needs to look down at the foundation of the temple that you're a part of and see the sure footing. Look to the apostles, sure. Look to the prophets. And above all, look to your cornerstone, Jesus, who is holding you together and holding you up. You have all the support in the world. So brothers and sisters, I want you to notice something about this text. Paul spends 10 verses detailing our, let's say, vertical restoration, how we are at peace with God as individuals, how we are made right with God in Jesus. 10 verses. But then he spends the next 12 verses detailing our horizontal restoration, how in Jesus we are at peace with each other. You see, like Jesus, Paul cares every bit as much with how you view your relationship to the person to the right and to the left of you as how you view your relationship with God. You cannot truly experience the vertical restoration of verses 1 through 10 if you have not accepted the horizontal restoration of verses 11 through 22. Stated a different way, one cannot stand before God in the fullness of, of salvation while harboring the notion that they are more lovable, more worthy, 
more deserving or more connected than anyone else. I would also add less than. What Paul is taking great pains to say is this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus has created one new humanity. We all need him. He is available to us all. We all receive everything he has to give. We all enjoy the intimate access to the Father that he provides. This vertical and this horizontal restoration, they are a package deal. You can't accept one without the other. And do you know why this is so important? Because the entire story of the Bible is how God is working through humanity to restore everything to how it was created to be. Eden lost, and Jesus journeying alongside and through humanity to restore us to Eden, how things were supposed to be. Why is the church supposed to peacefully love each other across any and all demographic splits? Because that's what heaven will be like. Because our prayer should be modeled after Jesus. We prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In each one of us, individually and corporately, bringing heaven to earth as we submit to the reign of the king of the universe. So the joint message of Ephesians 2 is the bare bones of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Track with me here. Before Jesus, we were lost. God loves us unconditionally. Jesus is king. Jesus saved us without any help from us. We are the continuing result of his continuing work. The old covenant, its attempted observance, cannot make me belong in his family. In Jesus, I'm not a Jew, I'm not a Gentile, I'm a child of God. In Jesus, I belong. I'm a citizen of his kingdom. I'm part of his family. And I'm part of God's church, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, destined to reveal his love to the world. In fact, if you believe what Paul is laying down so clearly in these verses, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what church you attend, no matter what day you choose to gather and worship, what day you choose to take off of work, no matter who you think the Antichrist is, no matter if you're vegan, vegetarian, or you're on Atkins eating red meat all day long, if you can get behind everything Paul says here, we're eating at the same table. And I'm not saying that other beliefs or the doctrines don't matter. Please don't hear me saying that at all. I'm saying that this is what matters most. This is where our faith, our testimony, should begin and end. Because if we aren't on the same page here, nothing else really matters. I want to invite our worship team to come back up to the stage now in just a moment. They're going to lead us in a powerful song of response, a song of faith and acknowledgement of Jesus' superiority, his word speaking over our lives. The song is, Who You Say I Am. One of my favorite songs, oh my goodness. As the team is assembling, I want to remind you, we're barely into this, this letter of Ephesians. It's worth pausing this morning, or I should say this afternoon, and acknowledging and embracing 
who we are in Christ. We need to take moments like this because it's too easy to trust how I'm feeling inside as to how I'm standing before the Father. But my feelings are real, but they cannot dictate how I view myself. Jesus' word over my life is supreme. I am who he says I am, not how I feel. So, church family, who are you in Christ? You are chosen. You are holy and blameless. You are his son, his daughter. You are redeemed, forgiven. You are loved. You are truly alive. You are saved by his grace alone. You are the beautiful workmanship of Jesus. You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You are part of the family of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are destined to reveal the love of Jesus to a world that needs him every bit as much as you do. You belong to him. I invite you to boldly come before the throne of grace as we lift our voices in praise. Please stand with us as we sing.
child of God. Yes, I am. Jesus, we just thank you. These words are true. Who the Son has set free, we are free indeed. We're a child of the one true King. And in our Father's house, there's plenty of room for us. Jesus, as we seek to live for you in this world, to reveal your love to each person that needs to hear it every bit as much as we did, we just know that your, your house has plenty of room for them too. So by your grace, through your Spirit, may we bring as many as possible with us. May we live free in you. Amen.